If you have your Bibles, go with me to Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel. We're going to be camping out there in chapter 36, but we're in order to not take the Bible out of context, we're going to begin back in chapter 2. And some of you say, boy, this is going to be the longest sermon in the history of my life to go uh, from chapter 2 to verse or chapter 36. But as you're turning there, um, I would like to uh, announce the series that we will start Next week is going to be a four-week series on miracles, the supernatural. And this question, are miracles, number one, possible at all? I think y'all would say yes. And then, how do you respond to those people who claim that a miracle would be a violation of natural law? It's either impossible or it would throw everything else off, so therefore miracles cannot happen. And then we will address the question that if miracles are possible, are miracles still possible today? And what is the evidence, if any, for that? And then finally, what does that mean for you and I? It's not going to be necessarily a study uh, in theory, but we're going to look at some fascinating, fascinating examples of things that are blowing the minds of even crusty, dusty scholars. There's a book out from an academic press uh, documenting things that cannot be explained through medical science, through natural law alone. And it's not from some guy who gets money from selling prayer cloths at a crusade. It's not from someone off of Christian television, although there are probably many of those people that love the Lord, and I think we as Christians need to be very careful, amen, on who we level criticism against, unless it goes against God's Word. But we're going to look at the evidence for miracles and the supernatural. It's going to be for those of you who are thinkers, Those of you who always have the, okay, so if that's the case, if that, then this. Those of you that enjoy thinking and some of you who say, I leave the thinking to my husband or for some of our wise men say, I try to think, but usually the conclusion is that she's right. All right, whichever way it works there. Those of you that are more effective, you are more feelings based. How does this minister? How does this look? In my life, you will be absolutely blown away by the flesh and blood examples that we're finding today of what I believe are things that can only be explained as miracles. And those of you that have questions, even if you're a skeptic here this morning, we love skeptics at Rocky Mountain Baptist Church. Amen? Some of you are like, we do, we do. We do. We love, we love people enough to say we will entertain your questions and try to give you answers because we believe that Jesus cares about people no matter what stage they're at. So that's starting next Sunday. Hope that you bring a friend. And what's going to start after that is a seven week series on the problem of evil. Why does God let bad things happen? I just want to put a bug in your ear. The way it's often asked is, why does God let bad things happen to good people? Just to get your wheels spinning, there are no good people. Some people say, okay, well, do we ask the question, why does God let good things happen to bad people? That may be a little closer. 
But in all seriousness, if you have encountered suffering, if there have been things that have happened in your family and in your friendships, that it seems to just literally take the wind out of the sails of your life so that you end up asking questions, is God there? Does God care? It is a series for you from the Word of God. Some people say, well, you're never supposed to question anything. We're going to look at Job. I encourage you. I'm not saying don't come this next four weeks, but after that, this gives you four weeks to prepare to bring someone that you know that needs an answer as to whether God is there and whether He cares and He can actually do something for them. So, let's go to Ezekiel. This is the final part in our Slow Fade series. And the main idea for our message this morning is this, and it's on your outline. The first step in changing your life is to realize that you can't. The first step in you changing is to realize that you can't change. You see, now hold on, Jeff. I've worked on my vices. I'm doing less things that are wrong today than I was last year. That may be true, and if so, good for you because you're probably having a better family life. But you can't change your heart. And at the end of the day, that's what matters. You see, what we're going to look at from God's Word is the first step in realizing that our life needs to be changed is to say, Jesus, I can't do it on my own. I need you to come in and give me a brand new heart. So let's go back up to Ezekiel chapter 2. Uh, if you've, There may be some of you who've never heard a sermon from Ezekiel. Um, there have been some people who have even said that Ezekiel was a little bit disturbed. There are some visions in this book and some things that are very out of the ordinary that if someone came and told you today that they had that vision, you may think that they've stayed up a little too late and had a little bit too much Taco Bell and maybe a little bit too much of something else. But it's in the Word of God. It's very profound. It contains many historical references But one of the things that's interesting to me, and if you're taking notes, you can write this down. This will help you understand the book of Ezekiel. And it's not just a weird name of something that happened thousands of years ago, but it's something that applies today. Ezekiel lived in a time, you can just write Ezekiel equals embarrassment and chaos. He prophesied in a time to where his beloved nation of Judah was conquered by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar's siege engines and his soldiers came and laid siege to the city and it fell. And then Judah goes into captivity. The beautiful structure of Solomon's temple was destroyed. Imagine being one of the exiles being led away. You had no more rights. You could not defend yourself. They had outnumbered you. They had killed your young men. They had taken care of the leadership. And here you are, one of the few bitter survivors, and you are being led away to be put in another land. Just some background. There's a group called the Edomites. Edomites, if you have read your Bible closely, you will remember that Esau, Jacob and Esau, these are Esau's descendants. They were very closely related to the Jews, but they were bitter enemies. Here's what the Edomites did when the Babylonians came 
to take over Judea. When the Jews were down, when they were kicked down by the most powerful empire in the world at that time, guess what the Edomites did? They teamed up with the Babylonians. And you have this theme of betrayal, of embarrassment, and imagine you are one of the survivors and you are being led in chains by these cruel Babylonian captors and you look up on the Edomites lived in mountainous areas and you looked up out of the corner of your eye and you saw the Edomite army, small as it was, basically looking down upon you and mocking you. And the thoughts of if I ever get away, if I could ever raise an army, if I could ever, if I ever got my hands around the necks of you people, I would kill every last one of you. It's hard to find a reference for America. But this is a crazy metaphor. Imagine Virginia. We were not a part of the United States. We were our own country. And someone else came to take over. You say, Pastor Jeff, that would not happen because I've got guns. Everybody in Virginia's got guns. I know that you're like, you don't understand, brother. I got a safe. And if they come, you can just play that song. Let the bodies hit the floor because that's all that's going to be happening. Okay, okay, all right. Yeah, I, I give that to you. But imagine if the army was so powerful, they were able to conquer Virginia. And imagine North Carolina was the only state around that had anybody left. And instead of coming to help us out, North Carolina flanked us with the invaders. And they're bringing us through the Blue Ridge Parkway. And people that we thought were our friends are mocking our demise. It's a time of absolute chaos, a time of embarrassment. And in chapter 2, the Bible says in verse 5, God's saying, Ezekiel, in a time of embarrassment and chaos, here's your job. And whether they hear, this is verse 5 of chapter 2, or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. They, I'd I'd mark this in your Bible, they will know that a prophet has been among them. Amen? Amen. Verse 6, And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. And verse 7, You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. You know what the application is here for you as a Christian follower of Jesus Christ today? Your job is to be God's man and God's woman, to love people and let the chips fall where they may. It is not your job to save anybody. It is not your job to change their heart. It's your joy to be Jesus to them so God can use them. And at the end of the day, you should say, just like Ezekiel, you know what? Even though these situations not, may not change, if I'm there, they will know that a follower of Jesus Christ has been there. Amen? I'm going to do what I can for the Lord. If you go to chapter 3, there in verse number 18, this is where some of you have heard this verse where God says, If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, in order to save his life, the wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. 
Your job as a follower of Jesus Christ is not to change hearts, but to love people and warn people. We're going to break down that more in a little bit. Go with me to chapter 7. We're just building the theme so that we can understand this difficult book. Chapter 7 and verse 23. This is the reason why God allowed the nation to be conquered. He tells Ezekiel, verse 23, Forge a chain, for the land is full of bloody crimes and the city is full of violence. I will bring the worst of the nations to take possession of their houses. I will put an end to the pride of the strong and their holy places shall be profaned. Go with me to chapter 13. We're not going to break this down, but if you just want to make a note in here, the leaders, the godly leaders, quote-unquote, of Israel turned into false prophets. In other words, the preachers of the day told people only good news. That wasn't actually good news. You see, we can make people feel good, but if we don't tell them the truth, we're really not alleviating their suffering, are we? We have to tell him the truth. Go with uh, me to um, chapter 14 there in verse number 20. This is an interesting parallel. The Bible says, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. In other words, if some of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament had been among you guys, this is what God's saying. He said it wouldn't do any good. Y'all okay? What does that mean, Jeff? What it means is what we talked about last week with the hard heart. I mean, man, y'all should have seen the view from up here. Some of y'all were like, oh my lanta. I, I, what in the world? I, do I have a hard heart? Have I, have I done this? Have I done, what is going on? Is it true that God can harden hearts? Listen, when you see the book of Ezekiel, it's a prime example, a textbook scenario of a group of people that have hardened their hearts to the point to where God says, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job had been preaching among you, it wouldn't make any difference. Let me put an asterisk here. We are not the ones, look here, we are not the ones to know when that is in someone else's life. It is our job to love people and to share the gospel, and to pray for them. But it is God and God alone who knows the state of the heart. Aren't you glad that that's true? Imagine if you had Superman's spiritual x-ray vision, and you could see the states of people's hearts. You truly knew what was going on. And you truly saw what they had been through, what they had done, what they were holding back against God, what they were unwilling to do. Don't you think that would crush you? That knowledge? Imagine what Jesus went through when He took all of the sin of the world on Himself. Then in chapter 16, He gives, and we're not going to get into this, this is some pretty pretty sordid stuff. We're not avoiding it because of that, but just because we have time constraints, because we try to keep our sermons with under three hours or so. But the concept of, of chapter 16 in Ezekiel is that God says, Israel is like a prostitute. How's that for a sermon? Imagine you're Ezekiel. God has called you to speak to the people and your sermon is, you are all prostitutes. Imagine standing up reading that baby off. I mean, how many, how many people you think is going to come down the aisle on that one? That was me. Just so everybody knew. You know, you throw a rock, 
pack of dogs, the one that yelps gets hit. It's funny. Sometimes you, you preach a sermon, you, you get some re- responses like, oh, I, I didn't know that was, that was you. But anyway, I get beat up all week through the text. God doing this in my life. So I get to, in love, explain it to you so God can do a number on you. And by the way, that's not because God is a ruffian and because he likes putting people down. It's because he loves us that he shows us what needs to be removed. He's like a good doctor that says, we found something, but you don't have to go on chemo to get it out. I can surgically remove it by the power of my Holy Spirit. Let's go to chapter 18. Building the background. This is where some of you that have been in evangelism before, you get this uh, concept of the soul that sins, it shall die. There in verse 4. Here's some other things that the nation of Israel is doing in verse 10. If he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, though he himself did none of these things, who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abomination, lends at interest, and takes profit, shall he then live? He shall not live. He he has done all these abominations. He shall surely die, and his blood shall be upon himself. And if you flip over to chapter 24, it is where the storm comes, the Babylonians are there, and the bloody siege begins. You know, it's interesting how long God waited on the nation of Israel and of Judah. This is speaking specifically to the nation of Judah. If you go over to chapter 33, if you make a note there in your Bibles, it is when the city has fallen. There in verse 21, in the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem, in other words, a lone survivor, came to me and said, the city has been struck down. Imagine being that guy. Like some of you are inclined to run marathons, and it was after the Battle of Marathon when the Greeks defeated the Persians, and Philippides ran the equivalent of a modern marathon, and he was able to just mouth a few words before he collapsed and died. I think it's interesting today some of us are inclined to do something that killed the first guy that ever did it. So if you don't want to run a marathon, you can bring that out with your friends that do. So, y'all all right? Okay. But then if you go over to chapter 34, after the walls have fallen, you see the picture of the good shepherd. Notice verse 16 in chapter 34. This is God. He says, I will seek the lost and will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. And that's a picture in that day. Uh, if you've ever reading the, the word uh, fatness of heart in the King James, it literally means strong. It means uh, healthy in that day and time. This is the picture of the good shepherd. And then you can go all the way to chapter 36 where we're going to camp out the rest of our time today. And we're going to find out what God can do through a heart transplant. 
We're going to look at three things that God gives to the guilty person. You say, now Jeff, it was just enough for me to be able to come here. This is a new chapter in my life. I'm trying to start the church thing, to stay plugged into it. But you don't understand, Pastor Jeff, how much guilt I have. Listen, we don't understand how much guilt the collective whole nation of Judah had, but yet after the city fell, God says, I'm going to go in and I'm going to pick up the ones who have fallen and I will be the one who will restore them. Aren't you glad? Now check this out. Did you notice in the book how God lets them go, lets them go, lets them go until their own sin brings them to rock bottom. And then the loving Savior leans down like a good shepherd to pick them up from where they've fallen. You see, now Jeff, why did God not do that before the city fell? Well, listen, before the city fell, God didn't have their attention because their hearts were hard. You see, and often in our lives, I want everybody to check this out, please, even though we've got the exodus that goes on every week in our church. Hey, all right. Every time we think that God has left us, often what is happening, if there is sin involved, is God is allowing us to get to that point to to where we will actually listen. God allowed them to hit rock bottom so that they would be able to look at Him. Now that right there is an argument, I think, for the fact that we are sinful people. I'm not going to ask for an amen on that. God often will speak to us if we're willing to listen. You see, Jeff, well, what does the Bible say that God gives to the person who's guilty? Well, there in verse 26, it says, this is God, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Number one, God gives a new heart. We have to understand a new heart comes from God. Now, notice the metaphor he uses here. He says that he will remove the heart of what? Help me out, church. Of stone. And I have right here in my hand. Y'all see that there in the back? All the way in the back? We've got, we've got a rock. Okay? A stone. And no, we're not going to do a David and Goliath thing. Alright? But one of the things that you notice about a stone is that if left to its own, often it, it can be... It's just hard. Right? This is, this is so deep. Some of you guys are like... Captain Obvious. Alright. There is a story in the Old Testament about a man who was out in Jacob and he used a stone for a pillow. Probably didn't get the best night's sleep. But when you notice the characteristics of a stone, of a rock, you know that it is hard. You know that often if you're dealing with just flesh and blood, you can't penetrated. I remember um, went shooting with, with Barry and, and, and Jacob a while ago and this was over in Blacksburg and we were shooting into the side of a mountain. It was a legal range and uh, and I, I had a uh, I had an AR-15 with a scope. Um, 
That scares you guys. Take that, Diane Feinstein. I had an AR-15 with the scope, and we were shooting targets, and there was a large, like this large rock face at the end of the range, and so we just began to uh, to shoot at the rock, and it's amazing how little damage even a rifle bullet will do to a hard rock. You can shoot it and shoot it and shoot it, maybe get a chip here, a little chunk fly off here. But why would the Bible use a rock for an illustration of a heart that does not have God in it. Well, think about it like this. How often, and I pray that this is not the case, but often with a crowd of our size, and then again, you never know even if it's a small group Bible study. Have you heard the need for mission work around the world? You've heard those sermons. You've seen those internet sites. You've heard the testimonies but it just bounces off. There's never any money given. There's never any consideration of, should I go? Should I pray? And think about involvement in outreach. And I just want to say once again, um, my heart is so overflowing with joy this morning. Fred, was it 24 folks that we had for Reach Out? We had tw- 24 people uh, at our second ever Reach Out event this past Wednesday night. 24 folks from Rocky Mount Baptist Church. When it's pitch black outside, mind you, Come out and say, we're going to go tell people about Jesus. Amen? That ought to cause us to have joy. But what can happen if the heart is hard is the call to pray. You would never come pray with us on a Wednesday night. You're just not going to be there. You will not pray with your family at home. You rarely pray unless you need something from the Lord. As far as sharing the gospel, every time that is mentioned here, you say, I try to keep my head down just like they taught me. Do the soldier crawl and it hope that you won't get hit. You will not share the gospel because your heart is hard. As far as doing outreach to your friends, you say, they're my friends, but I don't want to mess up my friendships by getting Jesus in the middle, making it unduly, highly religious. That's because you care more about yourself than you do about your friend's eternal destiny. Are we still okay this morning? One other thing about a rock, if you think about it, if left to its own, unless it's heated up by an outside source, a stone will grow very, 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 very cold. You know, there are some... Folks in church, and they have heard fiery sermon after fiery sermon. They have heard music of all styles, whatever style fits them, and it just pulls upon their heartstrings. Or they 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 have they have been a part of a, a revival service, or where God really moves on a Sunday morning, and people have come down to pray and ask God to work in their lives, in their friends' lives. But they are unmoved. They will not. They will not respond. You see, there are folks that come to churches every week and the gospel is given and the Lord comes and says, come to me. I will change your heart. I will save you. Trust me. And it's just like knocking on a rock because they've built up hardness. You think about a stone. You know, this stone does not have any life. I don't have to worry about this stone growing and sprouting another stone and taking over the whole house. That's why you can walk into some churches Sunday morning in the United States and it is as dead as dead can get. Do you know why? Here's, here's my take on it. Honestly, honestly, 
People need to get saved. And go with me on this train of thought. If God exists, if Jesus rose from the dead, and if I have truly been saved from a real place with real people that exist in a real reality, and it goes on forever, a place called hell, but yet Jesus has saved me from that, and I know that I would go there without Him, but He loves me, and He gives me encouragement through His Word, and yet I can be unmoved week after week after week. It's because this is this. And God says, I will give you a new heart. And I'm so glad that Jesus is not the doctor with a sledgehammer, aren't you? You know, the, the old boy, he's, he means well. But he fixes everything with a hammer. Mangles it, beats it up, tears it apart. Jesus says, through His Word here, He says, I will give you, Natan in Hebrew, I will give you a new heart. You see, what we don't need in America, we don't need more self-help. We, we, we don't need more pop psychology. What we need is men and women who have new hearts. That's it. Because you, you see, when you get a new heart, you get a new life. When your heart gets made new by God, it's not that you have to be hopping to every church within a hundred miles saying, well, man, all oh, that, that pastor, I like the way he speaks, or boy, that music, it just really touched my heart, and I gotta get fired up on Sunday, cause boy, by Saturday night, I'm cooled down. Hello? But I could get this rock hot. Some of y'all, lighter right here, Jeff, wanna try, alright? Well, we could get it hot, throw it in the midst of a fire, but when we take it out, after a while, it's going to be just as lifeless and cold as before. So please hear me, church person, religious person, professing Christian, if it never seems to last, you need a new heart. And God says, I'll give you one. I'll take the old one that's lifeless. I'll take the old one that's cold. I'll take the old one that is hardened to the needs of people. And I'll give you my heart. You see, this is good stuff. Because what this means is that the first step in changing your life is realizing you can't change your life. Is that encouraging or is that depressing? Well, maybe a little bit of both. He's saying, hold on, Jeff. Let me ask you a question here. It almost sounds like there's this theistic, God-centered threat. Like, boy, you better give your life to God because if not, he's, you, this is your heart. Oh, you rock-hearted pagan people. I can throw a rock. You know, I mean, look, you know, like, look, it sounds almost like there's a threat. You know, like the pastor's going to beat somebody up. Like, what's going on? I don't like being threatened. Hold on, hold on. Um, I find it very interesting. Think about this with me. That whenever we come to those passages in God's Word to where it is God warning people, if you do not repent and turn to me, this will happen. We react like, oh, how can you? How can you, Jeff? How can the Bible? How can I be threatened? I should be able to have my choice and dir, dir, dir. But when it comes to our regular lives, often we say, hey, sometimes a warning is needed. Like I have a friend and he's got a, Got little kids, and he put on Facebook what his little son had done. His little son picked up a penny, and if you're a kid, aren't pennies awesome things? Right? You can find them all over the place, and and he just decided it looked so good. Y'all know where this is going. He'd swallowed it. So I get on Facebook and I see 
the x-ray of the penny that his son had swallowed. If you're a parent, you're wise to tell that child, if it is your child, don't swallow coins. Let me give you a couple things that, that, that you may not be aware of. Um, how many of you have ever seen warning labels that insult normal people's intelligence? Let me give you a couple. This is on a washer. has this tag that says, Do not put any person in this washer. Curling iron. Tag. No jokes. Tag on the curling iron. It says, Eye contact warning for straightening iron. Here it is. This product can burn eyes. Fuel tank cap. Warning. Never use a lit match or open flame to check fuel level. And then my favorite. It's a picture of a chainsaw doing a number on somebody's fingers and it says, Danger, do not hold the wrong end of a chainsaw. And some of you are like, Jeff, is that real? If you know the same people that I do, you should never ask that question, alright? We'll just leave it there. It's one of those, here's your sign. We know that warnings of danger are needed. Not so much the ones for those that don't get it, like, no, don't grab that part of the chainsaw, grab this part, unless you don't like your fingers. Okay, you know, not, I mean, we're talking just regular stuff, like the bridge is out. This will cause harm. And we're cool with that. Because we're like, man, I appreciate it. I I didn't know that that manufacturer was producing defective products. I I won't use that anymore. I appreciate you letting me know what ingredient was in this. That's an allergy that I have. I'm never going to do that. I appreciate that. Thank you, Surgeon General, whatever it may be. But then when it comes to God's Word, now go with me. When God warns us, And when godly Christians or a loving Sunday school teacher, pastor, preacher, communicator will tell us stuff that kind of goes against our grain, we'll all buck up in our heart and say, well, who are you to threaten me? Listen, God's warnings are not mere threats. They are warnings of love. Amen? Because God cares. You say, now Jeff, what does God say that He's going to do? Well, He says He will give them a heart of flesh. In other words, He will give them a heart that is tender in their conscience. You say, Jeff, I'm a Christian today and it seems like when I remember my past life and my mistakes, it seems that I have guilt. Go with me to verse 31 in the same chapter. This is God. He says, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Guess what? If you think back on your old way of life, it should first off produce a sense of shame. You know why? Because it was shameful. Can we have a moment of honesty? Every single honest person in here, if we could rewind the tape, we'd say, I am ashamed of it. But then we think 
For a moment we say, oh God, I've done those things. I think you've saved me. I think about this song. Listen to me. If you're a Christian and you replay those tapes of guilt and of regret of the past, there's a great song and it says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look to see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to pardon Him and look on me. Every time Satan replays those sordid, dirty details of your past, you say, I know. And He knows. And He has cleansed me from all of it. When God comes to give you a new heart and a new spirit, He gives you His heart. He gives you the ability to overcome sin. Notice what the text says there in verse 27. He says, I will cause you to walk in My statues and to obey My commands. He said, Jeff, hold on. I know I need God to change my life. I had made a decision when I was a kid. We've been out of church forever. We just, just wanted to, just wanted to get right with God. But it, there was something that happened in my past. There were things that happened in my past. And Jeff, I cannot, I cannot get past that. Imagine what they were doing. Being exiled off, looking upon the heights of Edom and seeing their betrayers mock them. But it's as if God says, you cannot blame Edom for your sin. I will take care of Edom. And if you allow me, I will take care of your sin. If you're here today and you've had a rough life, if you've had brutal things happen to you, please do not let that keep you from Jesus Christ. There's a young lady I know in in Georgia. She was a part of the church that I pastored there. She married a godly man. She was probably one of the most joyful, compassionate people you could find. But yet when she was a little girl, her mom was deep, deep into heavy drugs. And as a little girl, her grandparents told her to memorize their phone number so that she could call them if the situation ever got dangerous. And sometimes she will have called them from the drug house, a little four, five-year-old girl sitting on the front steps Her grandparents would come and pick her up. But listen, she has been saved and she's given her life to Jesus and He's changed her because you don't have to be defined by your past. Let me give you one more and then we'll be through. Those of you who know I'm studying apologetics at Liberty and that's a way to give people reasons to defend their faith. Reasons why God exists, why the Bible is true, so forth and so on. Well, There's a man that one of our professors told us about. His name is David Wood. And David uh, is one of these guys that if you met him in a dark alley, uh, you would just want to call him sir and go ahead and give him your lunch money. All right? Well, one of those guys. David, um, about 6'4", 300 pounds, just a bruiser, and he enjoyed fighting. Well, one day it got crazy, and he picked up a hammer and went to work on his dad. Cracked part of his dad's skull, almost killed his dad, and David was put in to prison, not jail, the prison. In prison, they say that very few people mess with him because he was so big and so aggressive and so mean. But one day he went out into the courtyard of that prison and he saw a little bitty guy sitting there on a table reading his Bible. And being an, a rabid atheist, Big David goes over to this guy and begins to just say, What are you reading that blankety blank stuff for? That's all a bunch of fill in the blank. And the guy's. Explain that I'm a Christian. Well, 
Next time David was back in the courtyard, he talked to this little guy and he began to just persecute him some more over reading his Bible and being a follower of Jesus in prison. And the little guy said, I'm actually fasting for you. To go without food so that God would save someone and break through their hard heart. And David, being very competitive, said, I can do that too. I, I can be, I can, I can beat you in that challenge. So he went on a fast and they thought he was doing a hunger strike and threw him in solitary confinement. God do work in mysterious ways. Well, in solitary confinement, they allowed him to have a Bible. Being competitive, big, mean, atheistic David began to read that Bible, began to read it. And the heart of this, the heart of a stone, God changed into a heart of flesh and God saved him. He served his time. He got out. Actually went to college. Studied. Got a degree. Met a godly Christian girl. They got married and guess who was there at their marriage ceremony? The very dad that he had almost killed with a hammer. And today, David Wood is one of the best debaters, apologists of the Christian faith. Giving an answer for the hope that lies within him. But then it even gets better. David had a Muslim friend named Nabil Qureshi. And Nabil was a Muslim. Well, David, a former atheist, now a Christian, was always on Nabil, trying to get him to, to believe in Jesus Christ. Bringing him to debates, talking to him, going over to his home and, and meeting his family. And then one, one night, it was, Nabil was the only Muslim there. There were other Christian apologists and philosophers, and they were getting ready to pray for the meal. And David, um, this is what Dr. Habermas said, said, okay, who's going to pray for this mess? He's still kind of a big, boisterous, you know, out there kind of guy. And Nabil, the Muslim guy, says, I'll pray it. And David was good friends with him. He's like, oh, great, we're going to have a Muslim prayer over the food. Because he could say that because they were such good friends. Nabil prays. At the end of his prayer, he says, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Nobody knew what to say. And Nabil turned to these Christian leaders and said, Oh, I didn't tell you guys. I've given my life to Jesus Christ and I've become a Christian. Never, ever cast out someone you think that their heart is too hard. Never stop praying. Never stop sharing the gospel because God says, I can replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. The invitation today is asking God to help us not to give up on the people that we know. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? This is our invitation. Probably all of us know someone that you say, Jeff, if I'm just being honest today, I believe that God can do all things, but it just seems like the person that I know, they are so lost they're so hard-hearted. They're so far away from God. Sometimes I just, honestly, Jeff, I just forget to pray for them because I'm not sure if it's going to do any good. And if that's you, this is from my heart. I've been there with you. I've done that too. And today, I'm asking you with me together to recommit our hearts to pray for those and to share the gospel with those people that we it seems that their hearts are hardened beyond repair. But we believe that God can do all things. Let's, this morning, ask God to do that 
for the ones that we know. If you've never been saved here today, if your heart is the one of stone and you say, Jeff, I need to have a new heart. I need to be saved. Just in this moment right now, give your life to Jesus Christ. Turn over to Him now your life. Say, Jesus, please save me. Please save me, Jesus. And the Bible tells us that He will not cast you out.